It's always a uh, blessing and a pleasure to be able to, to preach and to bring God's Word. So, brother, thank you for this opportunity uh, to be able to come before you guys this morning. So, uh, many of you know that, that my full-time job uh, is as an educator. And so, for the past 12 years, uh, I was in the classroom, and whenever I decided to make the transition into education, I started taking a bunch of education classes and uh, learning how to properly teach people and went through some professional development and things like that. Well, there was a two-word phrase that was often used uh, in these trainings and things that I went through, and it was, it was this phrase, wait time, okay? So those of you in education have probably heard this uh, many times over and over and over again. Well, I'm, I, I consider myself a rule follower and somebody that, that can hear these things and take them and put them into practice. And whenever I got into teaching, I started mid-year, started in January. And so the classroom that I walked into, I thought, okay, the teacher in here before me has done their job. They've taken care of what they needed to. Even though they left in the middle of the year, everything's good. I can step in here and I can pick up right up with where I need to be. And so I started in on a lesson. And in the back of my mind, I knew, hey, I'm coming to this point. I'm going to ask a question and I've got to have wait time, right? They, they preach this to me. They, they put it in me. I've got to have some wait time. And, you know, because the idea there is when you pose a question, you don't want to just immediately answer it. You want to give people time to think through it. So I started in on my lesson, taught for a couple minutes, and then I asked a question. And it was something that they should have learned the previous semester. And I stood there. And I stood there. And a little bit longer. After about seven and a half minutes, okay, I was really good at wait time, right? I had this down. After about seven and a half minutes, there's one kid in the back of the room, raised their hand, goes, uh, sorry, I don't remember your name, but we don't know that. I was like, oh, okay. All right, so let me back up and teach you guys this. So then I taught that and then asked a quick question about that, that concept, and they answered it really quickly. So now I'm feeling good. I'm in the groove. And so we move forward. I ask another question. And about four or five minutes go by and still no answer. So after a 50-minute class and about 20 minutes of it just spent in complete and utter silence, I realized I was doing something wrong, okay? So the idea behind wait time and, and why they're teaching that is that we as, as educators needed to be patient. We need to give people the opportunity to think. And so over time, I learned what that meant and how to properly employ it, and uh, I started using what I consider to myself to be my impatient tactics, so things like the last few years in, in teaching physics, if I needed students to you know, come up with just a recall term like circumference, and I knew that that was the answer. If I asked a question they didn't answer in the first few seconds, and I'd tell them, okay, hey, come on, you guys know this, starts with C, ends with circumference. You got this, right? So just, you know, just little things like that that I had in my back pocket that were things that I could use to quell my impatience but to keep things moving forward. So at first read, whenever we go through this story in 1 Samuel, oftentimes this is used as a model of impatience. And at the surface, that is absolutely what we do see. We see where Saul displays and exemplifies a picture of impatience. And we're going to get to that, but as we get to that, what I want you to know is that that is just that. That is the surface layer of what we're looking at here. What we really need to get to is why he did not have the appropriate wait time. 
What was the heart behind the matter? And so as we take a look at this, I tried to break it down in, in, in thinking about the story and the components of the story. <clears throat> and so we have three main points that we're going to look at as we work our way through this. The first is chaos. The second is control. And the third is consequences. So the chaos that is created within the situation, the control that Saul attempts to exert on the situation, and then the consequences of his heart behind his inappropriate wait time. And so before we really delve into this, I do want to give just a, a really quick history, a little bit of background as far as what's happened in 1 Samuel up to this point. So Israel, God's people, at the beginning of 1 Samuel, they're looking around at all the other nations, and they're looking at them and they're saying, okay, they've got a king, they've got a king, they've got a king, they've got a king. And so they're looking at Samuel saying, hey, why didn't you get us tickets to Oprah for that show? We want a king too. And so what they're looking at then is they're coming to Samuel and they're saying, Samuel, they've got a king, we want a king. And Samuel's immediate response is, you have a king. Your king is our heavenly king. And they go, no, 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 we want, we want an earthly king like everybody else. We want to be like them. So we work our way through the story and we see where Saul is appointed as the first king of Israel. And in his appointment, when people look at him, they're, okay, that looks like a king, right? We've got this guy. He's got the stature of a king. He's got the attitude of a king. He's leading his people. And in fact, if we back up two chapters into chapter 11, you see a pretty cool story where Saul is leading his people in battle against the Ammonites. You know, there is a section of his people that had a conflict with the Ammonites, and the Ammonites come in and they say, hey, we'll negotiate a peace treaty with you, but here are our terms. We want each of you to gouge out your right eye so that shame is brought upon Israel. And so as part of the negotiations, they say, well, hey, give us a few days to send word out, see if we've got anybody that will come and give us aid. And so word gets to Saul, and Saul rallies the troops, says he rallies 300,000 people. Okay, I don't even think I know a third of that many number of people, but he rallies 300,000 people that come to the aid there and they defeat the Ammonites. And here's the cool thing about the conclusion of that story is if you look at after that battle, after they overtake the Ammonites, in chapter 11, verse 12, it says, Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring those men that we may put them to death. Right? So all these people that are now in line behind Saul, their question is, hey, if anybody questioned why he should be king, let's, let's do away with them. Let's put them to death. But here's the cool part of it, is the very next verse, it says, but Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. And so Saul immediately takes what glory is trying to be bestowed upon him, and he turns it to the Lord, right? This day, the Lord has worked salvation. And as Pastor Chris just read a moment ago, I hope what you're seeing and kind of the, the contrast that I'm putting forth here is that the story we're looking at this morning in chapter 13 does not have the same conclusion. It does not end in the same place, right? So what we're going to look at and talk about then is, well, what happened you know, why was Saul giving glory here, but then ultimately not giving glory here? 
So in order to get that full picture, that's where we're going to work our way through of looking at the elements of this story. So chaos has been created. This is point number one. Our story starts out, and we see where Saul, after being king for, for two years, and so he's got you know, all these people, these 300,000 people that he's got with him, He's taking and turning around. He's saying, okay, you know, things have settled down. Things have calmed down. I don't need this many uh, troops and, and everything. So I'm going to keep 3,000. The rest of you can go home. And it says that he keeps 2,000 and he sends 1,000 with his son, Jonathan. Well, as they're going on their ways, Jonathan comes upon a garrison of the Philistines and it says that he defeats them. So upon news of that making its way to Saul... Saul wants to proclaim the victory, right? He's excited. You know, you would think your, your child does something pretty cool. You want to proclaim that, right? And, you know, if my daughters have a huge accomplishment, then I want to make that public. I want to tell everybody about it. And so you think, okay, Saul gets word. He wants to get word out about to, to all of Israel about Jonathan's victory. But if, when we look at verse 3, it says, Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. And then verse 4, And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. Hang on a second. If we back up, it said that Jonathan had defeated the, the garrison. So Saul is beginning to step in and to take credit. Now, yes, he's the king, and so there is some credit that's due there for his leadership, but he is taking credit as the one who defeated the Philistines here. And then he takes it a step further, and he says, and also, all of Israel, all of us, have become a stench to the Philistines. Okay, if you're a sports fan, then maybe you've heard the, the phrase, bulletin board material. That's what Saul is putting, on, putting out right now. You know, it would be as if I were standing here and telling you, hey, guys, just so that you know, uh, you know, there's some other church on the other side of town that they, they're speaking real poorly of us. We're a stench to them. Right? All of a sudden, there's going to be a little bit of pride, a little bit of, of things that rise up within you where you're like, no, 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 they're not going to say that about us. And so that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to motivate the Israelites to rise up against the Philistines. But what ends up happening is the complete opposite. That actually motivates the Philistines. So we see in verse 5, And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. So right there, immediately, as soon as the Philistines are hearing of all this that's going on, they've got 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen ready to go. But it doesn't stop there. It says they've got troops. And the description for the troops is that they are like the sand on the seashore in multitude. Okay? Just think about a situation where maybe you've encountered and you've had a large group of people coming against you. You know, I look out in this room right now, there's probably roughly 300 people in here. If all of you all of a sudden decided to stand up and come at me, and that's only 300, I'm going to be fearful, and I'm going to run, and I'm going to hide. Well, here the, the Israelites have thousands of horsemen, thousands of chariots, and so many individual troops that they can't count. All they can do is compare it to the number of sands on the seashore. And so naturally, what do the Israelites do? It says, when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for they were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves. 
They hid in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns and here and there and everywhere. Wherever they could go, wherever they could hide, they were looking for a place to escape. And we're told that some of them even crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Now, while they're fleeing, while all of these Philistines are coming against them, Saul is not with the people. He's still at Gilgal. And that's what we're told there. So then people began coming to him. And as they came to him, though, they weren't coming to him ready to turn and ready to fight. It says they came to him trembling. They were afraid. Chaos had taken over in this situation. Saul had created a system of disorder. Things were no longer in line like they were at the end of chapter 11, where they had overtaken the Ammonites and everything was good, and things start out here, and it's seemingly everything is good. That's why he's sending his troops back. Hey, we've got peace. We're good. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. But all of a sudden, things take a turn. He created this chaotic situation. And what I want to think about for us is that we live and are born into a world of chaos. You know, when we think about eternity, our natural understanding of that is a chaotic one. You know, we're born sinners. We're born into a sinful world and into a sinful body. And whenever we go about living our lives, there's going to be a point where we first understand and begin to think about the concept of eternity. And I know that because in Scripture, we're told that God places eternity on the hearts of man. And so there's going to, be a, to come a time where we begin to think about life beyond this life, beyond this temporary life. And when that happens, if you can reflect back upon that time when that first happened. There's fear, there's doubt, there's worry, there's concern, there's uncertainty because you don't know what's going on and what's going to happen. And so as those fears and those doubts begin to creep in in a situation of chaos, we become aware of that and our primary goal becomes self-preservation. You know, even just a simple example... I love it when my twin girls play together. When they get along and they giggle and they laugh and they have a great time. Uh, But those of you that are parents, you know that's a delicate ecosystem. Okay? The wrong introduction of any one element and things can quickly go awry. And it can become a chaotic situation. And when that happens, when the fighting ensues and the bickering and the arguing and the name calling and this, that, and the other, all that we as the parents are trying to do is to get in and to create peace, to cut out the chaos. We're trying to preserve our own sanity in those moments, right? And so in that same sense, whenever chaos runs into our lives, whenever we are born into the chaos and we are aware of our eternal need for something greater than ourselves, self-preservation becomes our goal. And so how do we go about finding this and trying to put it into, into practice, well, we try to take control of the situation. And so after identifying and seeing that we are in a state of chaos, our natural instinct is to take control. And that's what we're going to see out of Saul here as well. So we see, starting in verse 8, it 
It says, he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come, and the people were scattering from him. So there's still this chaos, and now it's taken it to another level because people have come to him, but now they're scattering. And, and in chapter 10, verse 8, you see where Samuel told Saul, hey, go to Gilgal and wait seven days, and I will come there, and I will offer the peace offering and the burnt offering. And, and so with that, he says, just wait. And so we get to this point where he's saying he's waiting his seven days, but he's looking around, and he's got to be frantically looking around just always looking on the horizon, where's Samuel, where's Samuel, where's Samuel? But eventually he comes to this point to where his wait time is done. It's over, I've had enough. He said seven days, we just hit day number seven. He's not here, let's roll. So he says, so Saul said, bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. You see, when we become fully aware of chaos in a situation, we attempt to take control. And that's exactly what Saul did right here. And especially in situations where we believe that we can affect the outcome. When I was a kid, I played uh, Little League Baseball. And uh, for a couple of years, my dad was the coach. And now I, I was not great uh, and the fact that my dad was the coach didn't necessarily give me favor. It really just meant that I was the plug-and-play guy that got put where uh, we had a hole. Well, the one thing that I was fairly decent at was uh, I, I could pitch a little bit in terms of I didn't have the greatest arm strength, but I could hit my spots. And so if we needed somebody that could come in and throw strikes, I could come in and throw strikes. Well, the fun thing about those games was there's a time limit. And as you're approaching the end of the time limit... If you're winning, you want to try to stall the game. You know, slow things down, especially if you're in a, in a situation in a game where you know the other team is better and you guys just somehow pulled something out and you're winning by one or two runs. So in those situations, my dad would often take and put me in the game to close out uh, pitching because he knew I could get up there and I could throw three balls um, and he would tell me, take your time. You know, so I remember multiple times throwing it and the ball just rolling to the catcher, right? Because I'm trying to waste as much time as I can. Uh, but then if, say, I throw one and they're swinging at it wildly and they put it in play and we end up with two quick outs but still five minutes left in the game, uh, the other reason that I was the closer was uh, because I'm an asthmatic. And uh, so we had, you know, as, as coaches and pitchers and catchers will have signals going from one another. My dad had this one in particular, and he'd look at me on the mound, and he'd go. I knew exactly what that meant, all right? So that meant before my next pitch, I was supposed to start breathing a little bit heavier, you know, <sighs> trying to, you know, kind of take it from the chest as you exhale, uh, then throw that next pitch, and then uh, there's supposed to be a little bit of wheezing that came with it from there, a little bit more labored breathing, maybe a cough or two at that time. And 
uh, throw another pitch, and then, uh, you know, it, it gets a little bit worse. And after about three, maybe four pitches, then after I catch it and I walk back to the mound, then it's a doubled over, just all out coffin. And so then my dad comes running out with the inhaler, and it's, all right, all right, you know, we got you, we're taking care of it. So not at all right, okay? <laughs> Terrible, <laughs> all right? So I'm standing here confessing, you know, my sin to you guys, right? So terrible thing for us to do, completely unsportsmanlike, but we were taking control of a situation, right? We saw the opportunity, we knew the tools at our disposal, and we said, we've got this, let's handle it. That's what Saul is doing in this situation. He's looking out at his people, and he's saying, they're scattering, they're running, they're fleeing, they're trembling in fear. I've got to do something. Well, Samuel's supposed to be coming, but he's not here. He's not here. Why isn't he here? Okay, what was Samuel going to do when he got here? Oh, he was going to offer the offerings. I've seen him do that. I got this. I can handle that. And so he says, excuse me, he says, bring them to me. Let's take care of this. We're going to offer these offerings, the burnt and the peace offerings, and then we're going to be led to victory. We've got this. So he tries to take control of the situation. And the immediate response of Samuel when he sees this is, what have you done? What have you done? And when we look at Saul's response, I want you to notice how often he talks about himself. So if we jump into verse 11, after Samuel says, what have you done? It says, and Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Now I want to put that in contrast to the story that I told you from chapter 11 with the Ammonites whenever Saul's response to the people was, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Notice the contrast. Saul's heart in chapter 13 is not for the Lord. That's why his wait time is not there. That's why he's struggling to be, impatient, or to be patient and why impatience comes out. It's because his heart is that of selfishness. And he's looking at the things and the tools that are at his disposal, the sacrifices, the offerings, and he's saying, I got this, right? It would be like me going home this afternoon, turning on uh, PGA, watching a little bit of golf and saying, hey, that guy just got first. He swings this club. He uses this ball. I'm going to order that online. And then me walking out next week expecting to win a PGA tournament. I'm putting my hope and my trust in tools, not in the one holding the tools. Saul, and we see this in the very next verse at the beginning of verse 13, when Samuel says, you have done foolishly. Right? From the surface looking at this, it's easy to say, Saul cared about his people. He was just trying to rescue his people. Why is he being called a fool and being told that he's acting foolishly? Well, it's because Samuel understands and sees and knows that the heart of the issue here is a lack of trust in the power of the Lord. 
Saul does not wait because he does not trust. He's taking things into his own hands, into his own control. And he is believing, I have the power to enact change here by taking care of these things. I have the power to enact change here because I am the king. He is putting himself at the center of it all. His pride and his selfishness are what are ultimately going to lead to his removal from the throne. And it's all because he does not trust. So how often in our lives do we place our hope in creation or in a product or in a process or in a person instead of the creator? Because that's exactly what we see Saul doing here is that he is placing his hope in the wrong thing. And as a result of that, when he tries to take control of the chaos, he is putting himself on the throne. And there's a consequence for that. And that's what we're going to lead into now. Verses 13 and 14. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But, now we often talk about that three-letter word about the buts of the Bible. This one rings a little bit differently than many of the others. Right? This one was setting up something great and grand for Saul. Right? He's laying out in verse 13, he says, you have not kept the command of the Lord which he commanded you for then. So he's saying, if you had kept the command of the Lord, then you would have been established and your kingdom would have been established over Israel forever. But you did not. And again, it was more than just impatience. It was the lack of trust. And so he says, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And so what we see here, the consequence of Saul stepping in to put himself above all, to put his pride, his selfishness, his feeling of taking control over these things, we see the consequence is his removal from the throne, both figuratively and literally. Right? Within his own life, he had taken himself and put himself on this pedestal. Look what I've done in the past. I've, already, I've only been king for a short period, but look what I've already accomplished. How often do we fall into that trap of pride and selfishness of, look what I've been able to do in such a short amount of time. And now, rather than trusting in those that have helped to put me here or trusting in the Lord who helped establish me and put me in this place, why don't I lean back on myself? You know, one of my favorite stories in the New Testament, just because it's a picture to me of remembering that I, I need to fight my pride on a daily basis, is that of the story of the rich young ruler and the culmination of it in which Jesus comes and he says how difficult it is for a rich man to come to heaven. And, you know, he uses that phrase, it's more difficult than coming through the eye of a needle. But the idea behind that is because we can naturally come to the point to where we want to trust in the things that we have established 
And we rely on ourselves or we rely on earthly things rather than relying on our eternal king. And so the consequence of doing that is we are going to be removed from our throne. If you put yourself in that seat, you will be removed from it. Saul is removed from it, again, from his personal throne, but then also from sitting as the king over Israel. You know, I said earlier, we are born into chaos. We are born into sin. And when the realization comes into our lives that there is something, there must be something beyond this life, there must be an eternity, there's got to be something else, we begin to try to take control of those things. Prior to going into education, I did college ministry at SFA for a couple of years. And the organization I worked with, we were very evangelistic. I'm not saying we were perfect or we were the best, but our goal was to have gospel conversations each and every day and multiple of them. And in those conversations, I will tell you the most frustrating gospel conversations that I had with college students were the ones where they came forth and they said, oh yeah, I'm a believer, I know I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person. All right, and so I'd say, okay, well, what do you mean by a good person? Oh, I was in line at McDonald's the other day and I paid for the food for the person behind me. Um, you know, I had a textbook left over from last year that I didn't need anymore, so I just gave it to a buddy. I take care of other people, I treat them well. So yeah, I'm good to people. This is a works-based theology. This is someone that believes that they can earn their salvation. They are attempting to take control of the chaos in their lives. But here's the reality. We are incapable of meeting the perfect standard that God has set. We can't do enough. We can't take and exert enough control in order to be perfect. But here's the beautiful thing is that as God looked down on the chaos of this world, he took control. He took control by sending his son, born of a virgin, both fully God and fully man, to live the life that we cannot live, to be perfect in every way, and then at the culmination of his life, to bear our death. And then to be risen to new life and seated at the right hand of the Father, where we can now receive this gift of salvation. And so the beautiful thing for us is that the control that we have to take is actually letting go of control. Because we cannot control enough to be able to earn it. You know, I think about, again, I like using illustrations of being a parent, but I think about my kids in times where they've been hanging on a bar and, and they're, they're holding on and they're fearful of letting go because they think it's too far of a drop. And so what do I do? I stand under them and I hold my hands out. And what do I say? I say, let go. I've got you. It's that same thing. We cannot exert enough control in our lives in order to hold ourselves in that place and on that bar for eternity. We have to let go. And if we don't let go and let God catch us and let God be in control, then at some point our strength is going to give out and we're going to fall. So in this life or the next, we will be removed from that throne. And this morning, if you are not walking with the Lord, if you do not have a relationship with him, 
My prayer for you is that the Lord has been moving in you, that the Lord has been opening your eyes to the control that you are trying to exert on your chaotic life. And that he is using a story like this to help you to see that we cannot exert enough control and that we have to let go and that we have to trust him. And so if that's you, I would encourage you this morning before you leave, come find one of the pastors, Pastor Chris, Pastor Dave, Pastor Aaron, or myself. Or if you came with a godly friend or family member, I'd encourage you to have a conversation with them but allow us to share the gospel with you in that setting and in that capacity. If you are walking with the Lord, if you've let go of the control that you have on your life and you're trusting him, my encouragement to you is to continue to do so. You know, I, I, in, as I was thinking through this whole situation, this setup, and, and what it looks like to to be a believer and to be trusting and to have entrusted our eternity to him and what that looks like as we continue to, to live, um, it, a story came to mind from about 15 years ago of a, a plane flight that took off from New York. And moments after taking off, uh, the plane was hit by a flock of geese. And immediately after being hit by the flock of geese, two of the engines were disabled. All right, so I've, I've been on planes before, and I was thinking, okay, if I'm in this situation, if I'm a passenger on this plane, what's my role? What's going on with me? You see, it doesn't matter what I do. I'm sitting in a tin can in the sky that's falling. I could grab every seat cushion on that plane after fighting everybody else for them, lock myself in the bathroom with all of those cushions and create myself this massive padded room. But ultimately, my fate and what happens to that plane is not in my control. I am at the mercy of the pilot. Now, whether it be wisely or stupidly or... I don't know, but at the very least, bravely. The captain of this plane, uh, you guys may know his name, Captain Sully, he landed this plane on the Hudson River, okay? Saving many lives. Now, for us as believers, we've entrusted ourselves to the Lord, right? We are in the plane of eternity, We are in there. There are choices, there are decisions, there are things that we are able to do. If that plane is going down, in my life, I have choices that I can make. Do I accept this job? Do I not accept it? Do I go to eat at this place for lunch? Do I move here? Do I do this, that, or the other? But ultimately, within those decisions, they're still happening within the plane that the Lord is flying of eternity. And so my trust ultimately is in Him. My faith lies with him. There's nothing that I can do to earn my salvation. There's nothing that I can do in order to save that plane or to land it safely. But what can I do? I can trust in the one that's flying it. And how do we learn to trust more? 
Well, it's through relationship. Now, I think about relationship with, with my wife. If we're sitting at home in the evening and we're talking and, and she just talks for 45 minutes and I'm just sitting beside her and just mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and not really paying attention, then I'm hearing things that are being said. I'm hearing the words that are coming out of her mouth, but I'm not engaging. I'm not listening to those things. And for some of us as believers, we walk around, we say, you know what? I read my Bible every day. But if somebody asks you, well, what did you read this morning? Oh, uh, I read it. Right? It's that same idea, that same concept. There's not mental, emotional, and spiritual engagement. And so the relationship is not being deepened, which means in the good times and in the bad, it's going to make it more difficult to trust. The same thing with our prayer life. Are we just putting forth empty platitudes to the Lord? Or are we engaged in our prayers? Gathering with the saints, fellowshipping with one another as we attend Sunday mornings, coming this evening for communion, Wednesday evenings, other Bible studies, as we engage in fellowship with other believers It's not something that is necessary for salvation, but it is something that helps us to trust the Lord more as we grow in our walk with him, right? In the same sense as when my wife and I began dating years ago, after we spent some time together, then we began to go, I would go over to uh, a party or to uh, her house or wherever with her and her friends and get to know her family and her friends, and she would do the same with mine. And so with that, as we get to know God's children, we get to know him more. And all that does is that deepens our trust of him. So that when the suffering comes, we know where to turn. So that when the times of rejoicing come, we know where to rejoice. You see, in chapter 11, at the end, Saul knew where to put the rejoicing, right? And whether that be because he was with Samuel in that moment and he had seen Samuel and he was just putting forth a front, I can't say one way or another, or whether he truly meant it. But he knew where that trust should have been put and where that joy should have been put in the victory. But in the chaos, in the times of suffering, He didn't lean on that. He leaned on himself. And so where are you leaning? Where is your hope? Where is your trust? Are you trusting in chariots? Are you trusting in actions? Are you trusting in processes and procedures? Saul believed that the sacrifices were more important than the one that they were worshiping. Where is your trust? So this morning, if you're walking with the Lord, I implore you to continue to deepen that walk with the Lord. You know, those actions, those processes, those procedures of reading the word, of praying, of attending and fellowshipping with God's people, the acts are not what deepen the relationship. It is the engagement of those things into our walk with the Lord. So when we engage in those things, be mentally present. 
be engaged in those things. If you're not a believer, then this morning again, I would encourage you, have a conversation with one of us. Place your trust in the Lord this morning. Join me now as we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We're thankful for this story of Saul and, Father, the warning that it can be before us in knowing where our trust needs to be placed. Father, we pray this morning for any of us in here who do not know you as Lord and Savior. We pray that you would be stirring in their lives, the Father, that you would be pushing them off of the throne of their own lives and that they would see their need to place you in that position. And Father, for those who are walking with you, I pray that you would continue to deepen their walks, continue to strengthen them, continue to help them to build relationship with you so that they can continue to walk with and for you throughout this life. We thank you that you bring the chaos and the darkness of this world into perfect order for your glory and not for the glory of man. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.